If you're new with us today, we go through passages of the Bible, through books of the Bible, and we typically take a passage and explain it, exposit it, and then apply it. It's called expositional preaching, expository preaching. We've been doing that in the book of Ephesians now for some time. And we've come near the end of the book, Ephesians chapter 6. And we're looking today really at Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. We'll only get about half of these armor pieces today, but what a rich text we have before us. It's, it's one of the most important passages on the active, progressive sanctification of a believer's life. You want to know how to win the spiritual battle, the one that we talked about last week? It's doing what he says in this passage. Killing sin in our lives. It starts with defending ourselves against Satan's temptations. The battle starts really before it begins. How you prepare yourself for this spiritual battle. The devil has schemes and you need to get ready. You need to be ready. Let's read what he has to say here. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Are you prepared for that spiritual warfare? Are you ready for the battle? And already in Ephesians 2, he said that our battle is against the spiritual realm. And really, he expands it there. He says, as an unbeliever, you were controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those temptations are still there. And Satan is working through the world to get you. He's directly attacking you. And he's tempting your flesh. And he's already told us, put on Christ in chapter 4. Put on Christ. Put off the old. Put on Christ. If you are a believer, you can do this. Now you need to remember to do it. And you need to actually do it. So he's talking about how to do this battle with the evil one. How to prepare for it. How to get ready for it. Now, the, as a new believer, you might think, what is this battle? You haven't struggled that much. If you just got saved maybe in the last few months or a year. Uh, the new believer almost has training wheels on. The Lord has almost protected you for a time. As you start to grow and germinate fruit. But it will come. The training wheels will come off. And it will come. The temptations will be there sooner or later. Or maybe you're here today and you're a believer for some time, a few years, many years. You know the battle is fierce. You know it's there every day. It's always present. And you have to be protected. You have to be ready. Or maybe you're a seasoned veteran here today, a mature believer for many years, decades. And you're just weary of the battle. You're tired. You wish you could retire as a veteran and just enjoy the benefits of retirement. But you can't. The Lord still has more for you to do. You're here. You're alive. You still have to fight this battle. You will have to fight it until you go to be with the Lord. So better to be prepared, better to be ready, than to sit back and just let things happen to us. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not passive. It's very active. Jesus didn't show up and just sort of sit back in Nazareth, see what would happen. He was active. He was always active. 
Now here in Ephesians 6, Paul is, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's pinning the, the longest passage in the Bible on spiritual warfare from verse 10 all the way down through 21. And so he's telling us how to fight this war, how to fight this battle. You got to realize the devil is always seeking. He's always seeking, scheming, strategizing. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You go to the zoo, you see these lions. They're, they're, sometimes they're roaring. You hear them all over the zoo. Imagine if you have Satan, the roaring lion, constantly around you. You do. You just can't see it. It's either him or his demons. And Peter knew what he was talking about. You'll remember in Luke 22, Jesus told Peter, the devil wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake you violently. He wants to see how you're going to come out when he shakes you like wheat is shaken. But Jesus says, I prayed for you and you won't make it through. So how can we stand against such an attack? Such a powerful being. Put on the whole armor of God. That's what Paul told us in 10 through 13. Put it on. Realize there's a fight. Realize there's a struggle. And put on what God has given you for defense. So before we look at what those pieces of the armor are, notice that he starts off once again commanding in verse 14 to stand firm, therefore. The reason he says therefore is based on all that he's just written. Since the church has a, a powerful supernatural opponent and God has equipped us with what we need, you must stand. That's the implication. And stand firm, you remember, means Stand and resist. It denotes that which lasts and is stable, not subject to change or decay. To stand firm means you don't give one inch. You don't move at all. You stand. And don't let the devil push you back. We're not talking physically here. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle. Now, sin can have physical effects, no doubt. But it starts in the spiritual realm, he's saying. It's not against flesh and blood. And notice we're not told to charge ahead. He doesn't say stand with the first attack coming at you and then charge ahead and go offensive. You won't see that here. Stand means you hold your ground and you don't move. Christ has already put us right here. We're right in the spot we need to be. You don't move backwards and we're not told to charge forward. It's not... Our job, it's not what we're commanded to do. We're not told to go and bind Satan. We're not going to bind demons. We're not going to slay a horde of demons, take over a city for God's dominion. That's in Christ's realm. We have enough to handle just on our own. Let's not get prideful and think that we're somehow going to become Michael the archangel and go out and take over the world for Christ. Yes, the gospel will go out and we should be part of that. But we're not here binding Satan. We're just trying to stand where Christ has put us. Well, how can we do that? This is a powerful enemy. How can we do that? Well, Paul says, put on these six pieces of armor. He uses an illustration of the Roman soldier. And he chooses six pieces of armor. It's not every single thing that the soldier would put on. But he chooses six pieces to represent certain aspects of what Christ has already given you. He's talking to believers. If you're a believer, if you've been made new, if you've been regenerated, been born again, returned from your sin, 
you have these pieces of armor. They're right there. They're within reach. You can take them up. And there's six of them. You've got to put them all on each and every piece. If you do five out of six, then you've left a weak spot. And Satan is going to go after that weak spot. That's a breach in the wall, and he's going after it. And he will attack you there. So you've got to put on the whole armor, the, the full armor. Don't leave any area open. Well, let's look at the first three today. And then we'll look at the second three next week. The first thing he tells people is put on the belt of truth. Number one, the belt of truth. And the belt of truth is there to protect us against false teaching and loose thinking. False teaching and loose thinking go together. But he says, stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth. How do I stand firm? How do I resist the devil? Well, the first thing you do, Paul says, is you put on this belt of truth. To gird here, to, to gird up means to wrap up, to tighten things up. In those days, they would wear a long tunic, maybe a shirt that goes down to the knees. And when you were fighting or running, you had to pull that thing up and you had to use a belt to do so. And so you would pull the bottom up, tuck it in, and you would have some shorts on then. And as a man, you could run or you could fight. But if you don't pull that up, and let's say it's a little longer than the knees, what's going to happen? You're going to trip. You're going to fall. You're going to stumble. You can't move around. My wife tells me that running in a dress is difficult. A long skirt, for example, is hard. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. And it's the same thing with the men who wore tunics in those days. All men did. The Roman soldier would either have a belt or some kind of girdle to gather up that flowing tunic or robe. He would gather it up tight. He would bring things in tight. And Paul's telling Christians here to, to stand against Satan's attacks by tying things up tightly. Tie it up tightly with the truth. Having girded up your loins with truth. Put on something that girds all the loose thinking out there up in your life and in your mind with a belt of truth. Now, what is this truth? Some say it's just truthfulness. Go about your life and be truthful. Have good integrity. I think it's more than that. It's about the truth of God here. A better interpretation is that the belt of truth here is all God's truth revealed in Scripture. Use the Word of God to tighten things up so you don't have loose thoughts and you're not open to false teaching, false ideas. It's the knowledge of the Bible. It's putting things together in Scripture. This is the way that Paul's already used truth twice. Go back to chapter 1, verse 13. You've got to know the truth. You've got to put it together. You've got to tighten the truth. Tighten it up. Use the truth to tighten things up in your life. One thirteen. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. So what is the truth there? It's, it's the gospel. It's all the truths, the core doctrines of the gospel. Go to chapter 4, verse 21. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. If, if you've heard of Christ, you've been taught the gospel, you believe, it's as if you've been taught directly by Christ. The truth is in him and it comes from him. That's how Paul has used truth already. And so when he gets to the end of the letter here, 
He's saying, use that truth, God's truth, the gospel and all that's contained, really all the doctrines of Scripture, and use it to tighten up your thinking. To stand firm, you've got to do that. You've got to put on the whole truth and nothing but God's truth. Only God's truth. People look everywhere else for help in this spiritual battle. But Paul's saying, use the truth. It's what Jude 3 says when he talks about, as Jude does in verse 3, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This body of truth given to us as believers. It's for our good. It's for our use. It's to equip us. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3.16 It's to equip us for righteousness and holiness. It's what's often called biblical doctrine. The truth of God's word. Putting things together in the Bible so that you know the truth. It's called systematic theology. Yes, as a Christian, you need to know theology. You don't have to know it so well that you can teach it. That'd be great, but you have to know basic Christian theology. Why? Because that's what Scripture teaches. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul taught. Doctrine is not a bad word. It's a good word. We love doctrine. We want to learn true doctrine. The theologian John Murray defined systematic theology as the task of setting forth in an orderly and coherent manner, the truth respecting God and his relations to man and the world. You need to know something about God. You do theology. If anybody ever asks you who is Jesus, whatever comes out of your mouth is theology because you're summarizing what you know from Scripture. Even if you quote a passage, you're using that passage in a certain instance to answer a question. You are doing theology. So it answers questions about who is God, who are we, who is Christ? What about the Holy Spirit? What about the Son of God, the Trinity, creation? You don't think the devil will try to use and twist those, make you stumble to trip you up? Every major area of doctrine, Satan has attempted to make people stumble with. Every single area of doctrine. Theology seeks to answer biblical questions, and that's what we should be asking. What about heaven and hell? What about sanctification? How do we grow in godliness? Do we go out and whip ourselves and not eat for a week and live in a cave? Is that the way to godliness? Because some have said that in church history. Or do we turn to scripture, join the church, be fed the truth? It's the second one. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Okay, Jesus, what is truth? Your word is truth, he tells the Father. Sanctify them, Father, my disciples. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We're not just talking about theology for seminary students, pastors. We're talking about theology that every Christian needs to know. So they're ready. So they're prepared. John MacArthur has said, authentic Christianity is concerned first and foremost with truth. The Christian faith is not primarily about feelings, although deep feelings will surely result from the impact of the truth on our hearts. Biblical Christianity is all about truth. It's not about lies. It's not about false beliefs. Satan is the father of lies. The opposite of the truth is lies, and that's Satan. He's the father. He's the originator of that. And notice Paul has given a specific order. He says, put this belt on first. It's fundamental. The first thing you do is you tie everything up. You can't put the other armor on until you do this. That doesn't mean you've got to wait 10 years to learn perfect theology. That means right now as a believer, you should be learning 
theology. You should be growing in your knowledge of what the whole Bible says. Peter uses this same verb. He says, therefore, prepare, in the NASB, other translations, take it more literally here, gird up the loins of your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Loins are down here. Gather everything up in that area. Your mind's up here. What's he saying? The same thing that Paul's saying. Tighten it up. Get ready. Prepare yourself. Don't go around with loose thinking. Gird it up. Get ready for battle. Get ready. Know what the Bible teaches. The, the worst way to prepare for battle is reading all the junk that's out there in the Christian bookstores. Not all Christian bookstores, but many. Popular Christian books. The latest books by Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Andy Stanley, Beth Moore, Joyce Meyer, Jen Hatmaker, anything from the Pope. There's a lot of bad teaching out there, and it's not going to get you ready. It's just going to take you off track. It's just going to get you confused. Can you be a solid believer and read that? Sure, but why would you? It's just going to open up loose thinking in your head. So loose that things start to fall out. Turn to the Word of God. Read it. Learn to put it together. Books like that won't help you. Now, there's faithful people. You should get their books, faithful teachers and preachers. They'll help you with the Bible. Find things online. That's something else you can do to, to tighten up your thinking. Find good, faithful preachers and teachers online, on YouTube. I can't tell you the number of people who've been saved by watching something on YouTube, and they show up here and tell us about that. It's amazing. Find good, solid things. There's bad stuff out there, too. Be careful. Be here on Sunday. You want to grow in the truth? Be here on Sunday. Grow through the teaching and the preaching. That's the best way to, to learn how to use the belt of truth, to get fed regularly. Listen to the preaching in your local church. It's been prepared for you. You really need to know something about all the major areas of theology. There's 10 areas of theology classically listed. If you want to know what they are, I'll, I'll run through them. You need to know bibliology. Bibliology is about Scripture. It's the theology of Scripture. What is this Bible? Who wrote it? How was it written? It doesn't have errors. Was it inspired by God? Is it sufficient for what we need it for? Theology proper, number two, theology proper. This is the theology of God, particularly God the Father. But the attributes of God. Who is God? How does he show himself to us? And also the Trinity. I just saw someone ask a question. Can a person be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity? No, they, the Trinity is essential. It's a core doctrine. This person had heard of the Trinity, they denied it, and they thought they were still a Christian. Number three, Christology. You got to know about Christ. Who is he? You don't have to read every book that we have in the bookstore on Christology to know something about Christ. Is he just a human? Is he just God? Is he fully God and fully man? Yes, that's the correct answer. Know something about his nature. Know something about his work, who he is, what he did. You need to know, number four, pneumatology. Sounds kind of scary, but it's just a word for the spirit. Pneuma means spirit in Greek. You need to know the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So you talk about a doctrine that's been abused today. It's either forgotten or twisted. Pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? And what has he done? And what does he do in our lives? Angelology. 
study of angels. We've been talking a lot about that. We talked about that last week with Satan and the demons. There's good angels as well. Anthropology, the doctrine of man, the study of man. Who are we? That's a question that David asked in the Psalms. That's a question that we find the answer to starting in Genesis and all the way through the Bible. Who are we? Are we born sinners? Why do we need a Savior? Anthropology. Number seven, homardiology. That's just a Greek word for sin. You need to know about sin. You don't think the modern church is weak on the doctrine of sin? It's not even mentioned in many churches. You've got to be ready for that. Satan is going to come to you and tempt you and try to tell you that that's not really a sin. You know that thing you did you felt guilty about? That's not a sin. Don't worry about it. Everybody does that. You need to know about sin. Where does it come from? What's the history of sin in the Bible? What does it do? What's its effects, its consequences? How does it twist our minds? Number eight, soteriology. You've got to know something about salvation. Soterio means Savior, salvation, soteriology, the study of salvation. Now you're taking your doctrine of Christ and your doctrine of man and your doctrine of sin and you have a solution here to that sin problem, a Savior. How do people get saved? What is the gospel? What's, what's God's part in salvation? Do we earn our salvation or is it all of God's grace? How does that work? What happens to us? What does the Bible say happens to us when we're saved? Number nine, ecclesiology. Now, you might think that's not important. Ecclesiology, that's the study of the church. My elders can figure that out. I'll let the Bible teachers figure that out. You've got to know whether you're in a true church or not. Are you even in a true biblical church? The Bible gives us guidelines for that. Do you have biblical leaders? What are their qualifications? Who are the leaders in the church? Uh, do we have councils and bishops? Do we have pope? Do we have... A synod? What does the Bible say about these things? And what is a true church? What about the Lord's Supper? What about baptism? That's ecclesiology. And then lastly, eschatology, number 10. You need to know at least the basics of eschatology. That Christ is coming back. That there will be a judgment. That there will be an eternal state where people will live forever and ever if they're saved. And they will suffer forever and ever if they're not saved. That's basic eschatology. But you'll find that our member statement of faith pretty much touches on all of these. Now, you can go deeper in these things. You can learn more. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I don't know that much about eschatology. And the next year they say the same thing. And the next year they say the same thing. You're a Christian and God's given you the word. Study. You don't have to study all day. But just study. Just read. Get a good book. Read your Bible. Get a, a theology book that kind of points to certain passages. Tie up the belt of truth. But don't be weakened for battle before you even begin. Somebody brings you a book, says, hey, I'd really like for you to read this. And it turns out it's heretical, but you don't know it because you haven't really studied enough to know. Tie it up. Number two, the second piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. It protects us from the devil's accusation. The devil's going to accuse. Do you see here? He says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. All of these are, are looking at things you've already done to get ready to stand firm. How do you stand firm? By having put these things on. Literally clothe yourself with a breastplate. Now, Paul's under house arrest. 
when he writes Ephesians. He's under house arrest. He's in Rome. He has seen Roman soldiers. They're guarding him. They're probably not wearing a breastplate when they guard him, but he has seen plenty of soldiers. He traveled on a ship with soldiers as they brought prisoners back from Palestine to Rome. He's seen soldiers all over the Roman Empire. He knows what they look like. That's what he has in mind. That's what his readers have in mind. And Roman legionaries wore breastplate. In Latin, it's called the lorica segmentata, the segmented breastplate. It was made of strong, overlapping strips of metal. So imagine football pad layers made of metal, starting on your shoulders, going down your arms, going down all the way to your waist. Layers of metal to protect you. And these strips are arranged horizontally on the body. They're overlapping downwards. They surround the torso, two halves. So you put them together, one in front, one in back. Tie them up with leather and bronze hooks. And they protect the body from sword thrusts and from arrows. The vital organs, the heart, is protected by the breastplate. So what Paul's saying here is that we should put on righteousness to protect our hearts from Satan's attacks. The breastplate is called the breastplate of righteousness. You put the breastplate on to protect your vital organs, to protect your heart. What kind of breastplate is it? It's one of righteousness. Satan is accusing you. He's accusing you. So what is this righteousness? We've got to dig a little deeper here. What is this? Well, just this basic definition is it's morally right. Whatever's morally right and whatever's according to God's standards. To be righteous means to do what God says. That's its basic definition. But we see two types in the Bible. Two types in the Bible. There's imputed righteousness. This is the gospel coming and saving you. And Christ puts his perfect righteousness in you the moment you're saved. You're declared righteous before the Father. If you were to die that day you're saved and you go before the Lord, he would say, you are declared righteous because of Christ. It's his righteousness. It's imputed on our account. The accountant God erased all of your sins and put all of Christ's good works on top of that sheet. And you look at that sheet of paper and it has righteous in Christ written on it. Christ imputed righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So he took away our sin if we're saved and that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we're in Christ, we get his righteousness. That's wonderful. I want that. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking to people who are already saved. He's talking to believers who already have that righteousness. And you can't choose to put that on. Once you're saved, it's on. Here he's talking about the second type we see in Scripture. Practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. It's what he's saying. Put on practical righteousness. As believers who have Christ's imputed righteousness, we can now live holy lives. Holiness, righteousness, they go together. It flows from your obedience to God's word. As you live as Christians, you're living a righteous life. And he's saying, put on that. Make sure you're living a holy life so that when the devil comes to attack you, he doesn't have a place. You've not made a place for him. Remember when Paul said in Ephesians 4, don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
because you're giving the devil a place in your life. You're saying, come on, devil, I'm mad. I'm inviting you to tempt me. That's not righteous. That's not holy. Let's look back at a few verses in Ephesians chapter 4, 424. He uses very similar language here. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You have something you can put on. It's righteousness. The righteousness that is holiness in your life. That Christ is working through you to produce. 5.9. Chapter 5 verse 9. For the fruit of the light. So he's calling them to be children of light. And children of light produce something. They produce fruit. It consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. He's saying live out a holy life. You want to protect yourself against Satan's schemes, his strategies? Put on a holy life. Put on a breastplate that protects you that is righteous and holy because you've been living that way. James Montgomery Boyce says about this, he says, in this context, Paul is urging those who already are Christians to put on God's armor. If they are Christians, they have already been clothed with God's righteousness in the first sense, imputed righteousness. Therefore, the only thing they can put on is practical holiness expressed in righteous thoughts and deeds. Live a godly life in your mind. Live a godly life in your life, actions, and deeds. Then you're protected because he's up there and he's accusing you. He's constantly accusing you before God's throne. He's trying to convince God that we're not living a righteous life. And you know what? Sometimes we're not. And so we have Christ as a mediator there and we confess our sins and we we go back to him and he cleanses us over and over. But Satan is up there all the time accusing. In fact, in Revelation 12, 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He who accuses them before our God day and night. He's always accusing you of sin. He's always accusing you of sin. Don't give him a, a reason to do that. Job was called a righteous man before God. But Satan continued to try and accuse him over and over of unrighteousness. You know, you probably heard the story about the reformer, Martin Luther. And it's said that when he was translating the Bible into German, that he would see the devil and a shadow coming at him. And he would throw his inkwell at him. And so for the longest time, when you would go to Martin Luther's house, people were painting or whoever owned the house was painting ink on the wall. But that's just a story. I mean, really, he was saying, my ink that I'm translating the Bible in is going to overturn the devil. And Luther had this to say about the devil. He said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, And where he is, there I shall be also. Live a holy life. And then when you stumble, look to Christ. Repent. Keep on looking to Christ and live for him. He died for us so that we could live for him. And we're going to stumble. But Paul's not focusing on the stumbling right now. He's saying, prepare yourself before the battle by living a holy life. Living a righteous life. Harold Horner, who wrote probably the best commentary on Ephesians, says, Believers are exhorted to act righteously in their daily dealings with God and humankind. As a soldier's breastplate protected his chest from enemy attacks, so sanctified righteous living guards believers' hearts 
against the assaults of the devil. He's looking for your heart. He wants to attack your heart. You've got to put on the breastplate. You want to protect against its temptations? Then live righteously. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible. Pray. Gather with other believers to worship and study and pray for one another. Live out the things that God has called us to do. Live a holy life. Thirdly, the last piece we'll get to today is the boots of the gospel of peace. The boots of the gospel of peace, it protects us against doubts that we have true peace with God. We sometimes want to doubt that we have true peace. Are we really saved? And the boots of the gospel of peace protect us from that. Verse 15, having shod your feet, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. To shod means to tie sandals up, to tie your boots up. He doesn't mention the actual sandals or boots, but it's assumed when he says, shod your feet, tie up your feet. Get your feet ready. Roman legionnaires, they wore a leather open-toed boot. If it got cold, they would put a sock on first and then this open-toed boot. But the thing about it is it had these hobnails on the bottom, iron hobnails, sort of a flat nail, uh, that a bit of a hump on it. And it would, all over the bottom of the boot, it would hold them in place when the enemy charged. And so you could dig in your boots and you wouldn't slip. You wouldn't slip in the soil. You wouldn't slip on a, a rainy day. You could charge uphill if you needed to. But here, Paul's saying, if you put these on, you won't slide. It's going to give you firm footing in battle. You're not going to slide back. Stand firm. It's defensive. He's already said it now three times. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. And to stand firm, you've got to have good footing. But he adds this word preparation. It means readiness. Get ready by doing this. To be ready at all times for an attack. A good soldier's got to have his boots on when he's ready to fight. You don't go into battle even today without your boots on. You've got to have them on. You've got to put them on when the, when the attack comes. Before the attack comes, really. Since the Christian's always involved in spiritual warfare, he's got to have those boots of the gospel of peace. Now, Paul borrows language here from Isaiah. He's borrowing it from Isaiah 52.7. How lovely... On the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Isaiah is looking forward to the gospel, and he's talking about those who bring the good news, the good news of salvation. Because Paul borrows some of that language, it's led people to think that here Paul's saying, put on the gospel and go take it out to people and preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. So this is sort of an offensive weapon here. That's not the case. This is talking about defending against spiritual attacks. Does the Bible call people to go preach the gospel? Of course. Paul has a, a few letters just describing how that should be done in the church. The whole New Testament's about that. But in this context, it's a defensive piece of armor to help you hold your ground. So the boots here mean that we should stand firm. We should hold firm against the devil with the peace that God has given us in salvation. 
you're going to doubt your salvation. You're, you're going to think, you know, I just sinned. The devil's tempting me. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I don't have peace with God. Maybe God's going to judge me for that sin I committed today. Look at Ephesians 2.14. And let's see how he's used this idea of peace. All of these ideas he's already brought out in the letter. So he's wrapping up the end of the letter, putting this all into effect for the believer in his sanctification. Uh, 2.14. For he himself is our peace. That's Christ. He's our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Verse 17. Same chapter, verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. What did Christ come and preach? He preached the gospel that we could have peace with God. The good news is we can have peace with God. Peace means no judgment. It means that you're at peace with the Father. You're at peace with God for eternity. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. You ever, you ever think about the peace you have with God that you did not have before? Romans 3 says that unbelievers don't have peace with God. They don't even know the way of peace with God. But later in Romans, he says, the believer has peace with God. 5.10, Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We've been reconciled. To be reconciled means you have peace. When you're at each other's throats, when you're fighting, there's not peace. But when you're reconciled, there's peace. It's the same with God. Putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace, preparing ourselves means that we're ready for battle. We're, we're planting ourselves firmly in the peace we have with God. That comforts us. And so when we have doubts, when Satan's trying to tempt you, to make you doubt, you've got peace with God. You don't have to listen to that. Do you like Luther? You know, I'm a sinner. I have peace with God, though. I'm a sinner that has peace with God. Now, if you're living an unholy life, if you're living an ungodly life, then you should doubt. He's talking to those who are truly born again. He's talking to those who can put this on. Many of you have memorized and love Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God. That's the peace he's talking about. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. The, the shoes... Help us to stand firm. Here in Philippians, he's saying it guards your hearts and your minds. It's peace with God given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are trusting in God through Christ will be given perfect peace. If you're saved, there's no issues. There's no problems. There's no future judgment in hell for the sins you commit today for the sins you committed yesterday, for the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. There is none. If, you, if you're truly saved, if you put your faith in Christ, you have eternal peace. Should you strive to live more holy? Yes. Should you strive to not sin so that you don't have to have these battles and doubts? Yes. But when you do, remember, 
you have peace with God. It's not based on what you do and don't do. It's based on Christ. And thank the Lord that it is. Those who are trusting in God through Christ will have perfect peace. Back when I was doing uh, jail ministry in, in L.A. in seminary, some of these guys had not heard the gospel. I mean, it's California, and they're, they're in jail. They've, they've grown up in bad neighborhoods. They've fallen into drugs. They end up in this long-term facility. And we would go in and just teach and preach the gospel. And these guys were just shocked. Some of them were shocked to hear the good news. See, we grow up in Texas. We've heard the gospel. Even if you weren't saved, you probably heard some parts of it. These guys had never heard the gospel. And, and I remember one guy, he said, are you telling me all my sins can be forgiven? Everything I've ever done? And we told him, we said, yeah, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. He said, wow, all my sins have been forgiven. He couldn't believe it. It was, it was almost too much to take in. But he did put his faith in Christ because he heard that only the gospel could give us true peace. Only the gospel. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If we have peace with God through Christ, Satan can try, but what can he do? What can he do? Do you have peace with God today? Do you have peace with God through Christ? Is that something that you could put on? You need to ask yourself that. Could, could I even put this on? Could, could I do what Paul's telling me to do here? Or am I continuing to live in sin and God is going to judge me for it? Now, as a believer, you've got to take up three, three pieces that we've looked at today. You've got to put them on. And you've got to do it every day. They're right there. Use them. Why wouldn't you use them? You can't just show up at church and think, oh, I've got them on now. now you've got to take what you learn and apply that. But what do you have to do? Well, it's right there beside each one. The belt of truth. Know the truth of God's word. Know it. The breastplate. Live out a righteous life. Grow in your holiness. And I've given some examples of that. Hang around here and you'll, you'll hear a lot more ways to do that. And then we just looked at having peace with God. Remember that peace. When you're struggling, uh, when you're having all kinds of internal turmoil and emotional struggles, remember, you have peace with God. No matter what happens in your life, you have peace with God. So let's pray that he would uh, remind us of this every day and we would put these things on. Amen. Father, we call upon you. We ask you to help us in this. Let us put on these pieces of armor. We are often weak. We are frail. As believers, we stumble. But you've given us all the power, all the strength, all the equipment. It's given to us by you. you. You have made this armor for us to use. And let us put it on. Let us keep it on. And remember every single day to use what you've given us. Christ has given us so much. We're like little infants who just come out of the womb and think that we can stand against Satan on our own. We can't. We need you. We need your strength. 
And I pray, Lord, for those today who are listening who do not have peace with you. They're enemies of yours. You're against them and they're against you. And we know that the world says that you love everyone and that you're going to give everyone eternal life. But the scriptures say otherwise. Your holy word teaches us otherwise. You will judge the wicked. Even for one sin. So I pray that they would put their faith in Christ. That they would hear how good it is to live as a Christian. How blessed we are. And they would give their whole lives to him. And they would be yours forever. Turning away from their sin. And living a righteous life. We pray this because it would glorify you, Father. And we want to do that in all that we do. In the name of your Son, amen.